Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, child murder, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Timothy Marr spent years sailing for the East India Company, and he finally returned to London soil in 1808. He'd worked as the captain's personal servant, but he dreamt of returning home to marry his beloved and open their own business together. The young man's dreams came true. In April of 1811, 24-year-old Marr and his wife Celia purchased 29 Ratcliffe Highway in the town of Wapping near East London. There, they opened a linen shop. Marr chose this neighborhood because of its location on the highway, which served as a main thoroughfare. It connected the ports along the River Thames with London society. The young couple lived in the shop building, which contained a basement kitchen and bedrooms on the second floor. They employed a live-in servant named Margaret Jewell and a shop boy named James Gowan. Marr also hired a carpenter named Mr. Pugh to renovate the storefront. In August of that year, the Mars welcomed one more member to the household, their newborn son, Timothy Jr. With trusted employees and a growing family, the Mars reveled in their burgeoning success. By that winter, the linen shop earned steady business. The prime location seemed to funnel in customers. The shop saw a particularly busy day on December 7, 1811. The bustle lasted late into the evening. As the clock neared midnight, Marr and his shop boy, James, were still tidying up. Famished, Marr sent Margaret, the servant, to fetch a late supper. Margaret's heels clicked down the lamplit streets of East London. But she was unable to find any place still open, so she turned back to 29 Ratcliffe Highway. She arrived back at the linen shop about 20 minutes after she'd set out, but something wasn't right when she returned. Margaret noticed the shop was dark and closed up. Confused, she yanked the doorbell and slammed the knocker. No one answered. Minutes passed like this, ringing and knocking, to no avail. Margaret shivered in the cold. Little did she know, the scene that awaited her inside 29 Ratcliffe Highway would shock the whole of England. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Ratcliffe Highway Murders. This week, we'll cover the gruesome murders that gripped the city of London in 1811. Next week, we'll uncover new evidence and reach the investigation's conclusion. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. About 20 minutes after midnight on December 7th, 1811, Margaret Jewell returned to Timothy Marr's linen shop at 29 Ratcliffe Highway, where she worked as a servant. She found the door locked and all the windows darkened. Margaret assumed her masters had forgotten that she was still out and went to bed. She struck the door knocker and rang the bell, but she was only met with a cold night's breeze. Then Margaret heard footsteps descending the stairs at the back of the shop, as well as the faint cry of the Marr's infant son. She felt a moment of relief and waited for the door to open. But still no one answered. Not Mar, his wife Celia, nor the shop boy James. A fearful chill coursed through Margaret's already frigid limbs. She rang and knocked for the next half hour. Finally, someone came to her aid. George Onley, the patrolling night watchman, noticed the commotion and approached Margaret. Girl, stop that racket and go home. It's after one in the morning. But, sir, this is where I live. Master Mar sent me to, to fetch supper just before midnight, but when, when I returned, the shop was closed. The door is locked and no one is answering. Hmm. I saw Mar close the shutters at midnight. Even yelled to him to let him know they weren't pinned. A man yelled back from inside to say he knew. But see... The shutters still aren't latched. I fear something dreadful has happened. Onley and Margaret continued to knock, but the noise only roused the next-door neighbor, John Murray. It's awfully hard to sleep with you pounding like that. Apologies, Mr. Murray. Uh, The Mars won't answer their door. Mr. Murray, the shop was locked when I returned around 12.15... Did you happen to see anyone inside? 12.15, you say? I heard a thud from the shop around midnight, then crying. I assumed it was a domestic quarrel. Maybe that was a mistake. Murray instructed the others to keep knocking. He went into his backyard, which was conjoined with the shops. He hoped the Mars would hear him from there. Mar? Answer your door! Mar! But Murray's calls faded into the wind. Frustrated, he climbed over the fence that divided the two backyards. Once on Mars' property, he yelled again. He saw no sign of activity inside. Concerned, he crept through the darkness to the shop's back door. Murray noticed the back door was open. A soft glow flickered inside. He called for Mar as he entered the shop and was met with eerie silence as he followed the growing light up the back staircase. 
Murray found a candle on the second floor landing outside the bar's bedroom. He beckoned one last time. Mar! Mar, you in there! Your shutters are not fastened and your servant girl is outside in the cold! Wake up, sir! Silence filled the staircase. Marie lifted the candle, then tiptoed back down to the main floor, guided by the soft light. Sawdust from Mr. Pugh's carpentry muffled his footsteps. He inched down the hall that led to the shop. With only enough light to see a few inches, he measured each step. No! Oh, my dear. He stumbled over something soft on the floor. Murray caught his balance, took a breath, and lowered the candle. The sight of James Gowan's lifeless body materialized in the glow. Gowan lay face down. His skull was pulverized. Blood still oozed from the wound. Murray trembled as the flickering light revealed brain matter splattered across the counter and ceiling. Murray lurched to the front door for Margaret and Onley, but before he could reach them, he stumbled across Celia, face down with her head violently caved in. The room spun, but he managed to reach the door and yank it open. A small crowd had gathered around Margaret and Onley. Murder! Murder! The onlookers' own lights illuminated the scene. Margaret screamed. Murray summoned them into the building. They rushed in. Some knelt before Celia and James's corpses. Others shed tears. Bloody footprints spread in the sawdust as they examined the rest of the room. Then someone beckoned for the others to gather behind the counter, where Timothy Marr's body lay on the floor in the same bludgeoned state. The crowd cried out in horror. Finally, Margaret inched inside. The baby. The baby! Where? Downstairs. The crowd kicked up sawdust as they rushed to the basement kitchen. Their final discovery punctuated the tragedy. Timothy Marr Jr. was dead in his bassinet. The frenzied onlookers herded back upstairs. Then someone noticed a carpenter's ripping chisel on the counter amid the blood and brain matter. Strangely, the chisel was pristine. They collected it, believing it was crucial evidence. With no one's salvation left to hope for, the crowd paused in the shop. Tears fell as eyes glanced around, some searching for consolation, others growing in suspicion. But with no time to spare, a few set out into the cold night to alert the authorities. Officer Charles Horton of the River Thames Police Force arrived at 29 Ratcliffe Highway within minutes. It's unknown why Horton responded, as the River Thames Police were responsible for protecting anchored cargo. This case was outside his jurisdiction. Regardless, he cautioned the remaining onlookers to give him room to work. Armed with a lantern, Horton surveyed the bodies and searched the building for evidence. Horton found money in the shop's till, as well as a few pound notes on Mars' person. He began to dismiss robbery as a motive. Upstairs, he discovered the Mars' bedroom undisturbed. The bed hadn't even been slept in, and the drawers were tidy. 
One drawer contained over a hundred more pounds. The officer's lantern light revealed a chair next to the bed, the long handle of a shipman's maul, the type of hammer leaned against it. Horton lifted the maul and discovered its head was covered in blood. He brought the maul closer to the light and noticed patches of hair mixed with blood matted on the surface. He also realized that the spike end was chipped off. Horton concluded that the maul was the murder weapon. Meanwhile, another observer discovered two unique sets of footprints in the backyard leading away from the shop. Blood and sawdust mingled with the prints. Onlookers believed two killers had fled in that direction. As bystander theories grew, Horton knew he had to stay on top of the situation. He didn't want panic to grip the community. However, he'd soon learned that East Londoners' reactions were out of law enforcement's control. Coming up, law enforcement fumbles for a lead. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries, for some, The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the early morning hours of December 8, 1811, 24-year-old Timothy Marr, his wife, apprentice, and infant son were found dead on the floor of Marr's linen shop, just east of London. Onlookers scurried through the scene before they finally alerted the River Thames police. Officer Charles Horton arrived and found the presumed murder weapon. Horton brought the blood-smattered Shipman's Mall back to the police station, where it would remain for some time. Once at the station, Horton also learned that three Greek sailors had already been arrested. The sailors were apparently seen outside of the linen shop around the time of the murders, and one of them had bloodstains on his clothes. 
It was not uncommon for foreign sailors to be the first people accused of crimes. Pinning the blame on outsiders served as a tactic to restore a false sense of safety, especially in a case as appalling as this. As such, River Thames officers believed they had quickly solved the slaughter. However, the head of the force, John Harriet, soon confirmed the sailors' alibis. The case, as well as growing public panic, was still underway. Since the River Thames officers were out of their jurisdiction, local law enforcement known as the Shadwell Magistrates stepped in. These magistrates were political appointees funded by the church, and they were responsible for capturing, interrogating, and charging criminals. Solving crimes could earn them great prestige. Therefore, they rarely collaborated with other law enforcement factions and instead kept their findings close to the vest. Interdepartmental competition could mean bad news for victims, as oftentimes investigators did not possess all of the information related to a given case. This would soon become true for the Ratcliffe Highway murders. However, the Shadwell magistrates did invite John Harriet to observe their initial interviews. The magistrates started their questioning as close to the scene of the crime as they could. Margaret Jewell, George Onley, and John Murray were each brought in on the morning of December 8th. But through these interviews, the magistrates were only able to confirm that the Mars had no known enemies. They weren't able to identify any new suspects. As the sun rose over Wapping, news of the murders and the lack of suspects spread across town. The magistrates knew that they had to keep panic at bay as well as maintain their reputations. So in an attempt to make their efforts known, they posted flyers offering a 50-pound reward for any information. The flyers also shared details of the crime. The victims were most inhumanely and barbarously murdered. A ship carpenter's maul broken at the point and a bricklayer's ripping chisel were found upon the premises. Even though the magistrates mentioned the maul in their flyers, it's unclear whether they asked the River Thames police office to hand the weapon over. Regardless, with one foot still in the door, John Harriet remained on the case. Two days after magistrates had posted their flyers, no one came forward. So Harriet took matters into his own hands. He posted his own flyers and offered another reward. His flyers also mentioned a new detail. Apparently, a man in a flushing coat was seen near the linen shop on the night of the murders. But his efforts proved unappreciated. The home secretary, the very same person who appointed the local magistrates, censured Harriet for distributing his own flyers. Apparently, Harriet had violated policy by offering a reward for a crime not under his jurisdiction. The Home Secretary reminded Harriet that his job was to patrol the river. Harriet conceded, or at least appeared to. To the public's eye, the Shadwell magistrates were now in charge. Their next move involved learning more about the ripping chisel found at the scene. They stuck to their method of interviewing those who knew the Mars and brought in the carpenter, Mr. Pugh. Mr. Pugh, please explain your relationship to the deceased Timothy Marr. He hired me to open up his shop front. He wanted a grander window display. 
I employed two others, and we had been working for a few weeks when Mr. Mar- What of the missing ripping chisel? I borrowed a neighbor's ripping chisel for the work, but on that day, the chisel had gone missing. And Mr. Marr and his shop boy helped me search the building for it, but we never found it. But the chisel was found on the counter that night. How do you account for that? I... I have no idea, sir. Pugh is released after character witnesses testified on his behalf, including the owner of the ripping chisel. Since the chisel wasn't the presumed murder weapon, the Shadwell magistrates decided it wasn't important anymore. With no solid leads, time was ticking. The public's patience wore thin. Fear brewed among East Londoners. If this was not a robbery or a crime of vengeance, then anyone could be next. Sensational headlines further stoked fears. The Sussex Advertiser ran a headline that said, Horrid Murders, with three exclamation points. Even unsubstantiated claims were printed as magistrates continued to interrogate suspects. The Times reported a one-eyed man seen in a bloody cloak. Around that time, two Portuguese sailors were apprehended because they were seen drinking at a public house near Mar's shop just half an hour before the massacre. The Times then printed a rumor about the sailors, which read... At one time, it was said that Mr. Marr had been in evidence at the Old Bailey against a Portuguese who was lately hanged for murder, and that it was some of this man's friends who, from revenge, were determined to shed his blood. Even though this claim was never confirmed and the Portuguese sailors had alibis, the magistrates kept them in prison. In addition to the magistrates' existing distrust towards foreigners, there was a language barrier between them and those who attested to the alibis. Not to mention, the magistrates likely wanted to appear to the public as though they possessed worthwhile leads. The newspapers continued to churn out daily headlines, and the crime became national news. As rumors and theories swirled, members of the public wanted to witness the horrific shop scene for themselves, and they did. Londoners traveled to the neighborhood of Wapping to view the blood and brain splattered linen shop. They even stood in line to gain entry. What's more, the bloodied shop room wasn't the only sight to see. The corpses of the slain family and shop worker were put on display. Timothy, Celia, Timothy Jr., and James were laid out on the beds of the second floor bedrooms in the same condition as when they were murdered. Onlookers filed in and out. They gazed upon each brutal head wound and each face frozen in terror. The smell of decomposing flesh stained the air. What had once been a new family's home and business became a gory attraction. Law enforcement concern became reality. The public shock had ballooned into utter fixation. Author Thomas De Quincey described the widespread fear in an essay. He wrote, Under some groundless notion that the unknown murderer had quitted London, the panic which had convulsed the nightly metropolis diffused itself all over the island. I was myself at that time nearly 300 miles from London, but there and everywhere the panic was indescribable. Still, the days went on with little progress from law enforcement. The newspapers called for the government to do more, 
Prince Regent George IV succumbed to the public pressure and offered a hundred-pound reward for any information. Within two days, no one came forward, so he increased the reward to 500 pounds. Perhaps spurred by the prince's influence, a magistrate from the London neighborhood of Bow, named Aaron Graham, stepped in to investigate. Graham had become famous a few years prior for convicting a man who shot his business partner dead. His involvement gave Londoners hope that the Ratcliffe Highway killers would be brought to justice. Graham began with a couple theories. First, he tried to understand why Marr sent Margaret out so late. He wondered if Marr knew harm was coming and spared her, or if he needed her gone so that the killers could enter. But this theory soon proved fruitless, so he turned to the next one, family vengeance. Timothy Marr had a brother, and to Graham's knowledge, none of the other local magistrates had questioned him. Graham called him in for questioning, which lasted for 48 hours straight. I know you fought with your brother. Tell me the truth and this will all be over. We weren't fighting. I love my brother. I don't know who would make such a cruel accusation. You keep asking me the same questions. My answers aren't going to change. Tell me why you went to your brother's drapery on the night of December 7th. I told you I wasn't in London then. Many good people will confirm I was in Hackney. Mars' brother was able to produce witnesses. Graham's investigation began to appear directionless. To make matters worse, Graham went on to question Celia's brother-in-law, who had made a delivery to the shop the night of the murders, but Graham couldn't find good reason to charge him either. The family vengeance angle collapsed, and the once-famous London magistrate lost the public's faith. But all hope was not lost. Maybe a celebrity magistrate wasn't the key after all. Maybe a simple cargo patrolman could do the job. On December 19th, 12 days after the murders, John Harriet and the rest of the River Thames police force stepped back into the fold. The shipman's mall was still in their possession, and for whatever reason, perhaps because even one of the most well-known crime solvers in London failed to form a solid lead, Harriet and the other officers decided to re-examine the presumed murder weapon. Their discovery changed everything. Well, I'll be. How could we have not seen it before? Those magistrates caused all the hubbub with their pointless interviews. No matter now. And we're sure that's what it says? We've cleaned all the dried blood. Careful not to do any damage. JP, who could that be? Whoever it is, I'm sure we can find him. <laughs> Let him try and stop us now. Harriet posted flyers the next day. He no longer cared if he violated policy. The flyers announced the discovery of the initials JP etched into the mall and asked the public to come forward with any information. But before news of the finding could spread, the neighborhood of Wapping was hurled into panic once again. When we return... Another tragedy strikes East London, inciting all-out hysteria. Now, back to the story. Twelve days after the vicious massacre at Timothy Marr's Linen Shop at 29 Ratcliffe Highway, investigators were at a loss for leads. 
None of the local magistrates had identified credible suspects, and the public's panic and impatience mounted. John Harriet of the River Thames Police Force had been forced to step away from the case, but his office still possessed the presumed murder weapon, and they worked behind closed doors to reach a new discovery. They found the initials J.P. etched into the shipman's mall. The next day, Harriet posted flyers to announce the finding and request information. But before Harriet could make further progress, East London neighborhoods were shocked yet again. On the night of Thursday, December 19th, the same night Harriet discovered the initials, another horrendous crime occurred at the King's Arms public house, just a few blocks from the linen shop. 58-year-old John Williamson and his wife Elizabeth were a reputable couple in the Wapping neighborhood. They opened the King's Arms 15 years prior. The public house was known for its strict rules, such as no late-night gambling and a punctual 11 p.m. closing time. Just before 11 p.m. on December 19th, Mr. and Mrs. Williamson welcomed a neighbor and local constable named Mr. Anderson into the public house. The Williamson servant, Bridget Harrington, worked the tap. Sorry for the last-minute request, Mr. Williamson, but I'd like to purchase a pot of beer to take home. Constable Anderson, what good fortune. Come sit by my fire for a minute. Bridget, be a dear and fix a pot of ale for the man, will you? Straight away, sir. Now, Anderson, I must ask something of you tonight. A man in a brown jacket has been lurking outside our door. That is quite a fright, especially considering the state of things. If I see the man, I'll handle it. Not to worry. Anderson left the King's Arms moments later. He returned to his lodging to enjoy his pot of beer. After some time, he decided to return to the King's Arms. But when he approached the door... He was met with a piercing scream from inside. Before he could act, he noticed a man lowering himself from a window above. The man gripped a rope made of bed sheets. <gasps> Murder! Someone's been murdered in here! The constable ran back to his lodging to retrieve his sword. A small crowd began to form outside the king's arms. When Anderson re-emerged, he watched the man in the window fall about eight feet into a night watchman's arms. Anderson recognized the man as John Turner, one of the Williamson's lodgers. Turner, what is going on in there? Talk to me! I, I was roused from sleep when I heard banging on the front door. Then I heard Bridget scream that they were all going to be killed. I, 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 I heard a few loud thumps from downstairs. Mr. Williamson called out that he was dying! And then? Uh, I raced down the stairs through the doorway. I, I saw a man, six feet tall in a flushing coat, standing over a body. It looked like he was rifling through the pockets. Did you confront this man? No, sir. I crept back upstairs, fearing for my own safety. Once there, I realized the only way out was through the window. Upon hearing this, some onlookers attempted to force open the front door of the King's Arms. On a hunch, Constable Anderson set to pry open the cellar door. Light poured into the cellar. Anderson caught his breath at the sight of Mr. Williamson's lifeless body splayed out on the floor. 
His head had been savagely beaten and his throat was sliced down to the bone. His hands were slashed and his thumb dangled as though he'd put up a fight. A bloodied iron crowbar lay on the floor next to his body. Shouts from upstairs drew Anderson to the taproom kitchen where he found Mrs. Williamson and Bridget brutally slain. The lady of the house was found on her side with her throat slit and head caved in. Blood still flowed. Bridget's feet were under the fireplace grate as if she'd been prepping the morning's fire when she was attacked. The servant's head wound was startlingly large and her neck was also cut down to the bone. A further search of the king's arms led to the Williamson's great-granddaughter who was in her bed asleep and unharmed. She was escorted out of the building and taken to safety. Nothing appeared to be stolen except for Mr. Williamson's watch. The crowd found the back window open with blood on the sill. Then they spotted a bloody footprint on the ground below. They believed this is where the killer escaped. Within an hour, flyers were posted offering yet another reward for information. By the next morning, newspapers such as the Star London reported that the police searched every house, wagon, and boat in the river. Even London Bridge was sealed off while a suspect was picked up. But details on this suspect remain a mystery. Already reignited, John Harriet called on the Shadwell magistrates as well as magistrates from the neighboring parishes to attend a meeting at the River Thames police office. He hoped they could band together behind a coordinated investigation. Based on the similarities between the two crimes, he believed they were connected. But his hopes were dashed. While the details of this meeting were never revealed, This was apparently the only time investigators were ever in the same room. For whatever reason, Harriet couldn't convince the others to cooperate. We do know that a group of enraged citizens gathered outside the River Thames police office during the meeting. To add to the public hysteria, the press made aggressive claims. One example included a December 20th article from the Star, which reported, quote, The general conjecture at present is that the murderers are the same desperados who assassinated Mr. Marr and his family, and it is still asserted that both atrocities have been perpetrated by foreigners. We trust, therefore, that every foreign villain of whatever rank or degree throughout the country will be instantly taken into custody and kept as hostages for the security of the lives of His Majesty's subjects. The Shadwell magistrates fed into the desire to pin blame on a foreigner and interviewed an Irishman named Sylvester Driscoll. Driscoll had been lodging near the King's Arms. While it's unknown how the magistrates zeroed in on Driscoll, they did search his quarters and found a pair of pants with bloodstains. They brought him in for questioning. Explain the bloodstains on your trousers. It's not blood, sir. It's paint but our medical man confirmed it is indeed blood. Listen, a milkmaid shared our quarters. The pants were found under her bed, not mine. Uh, Please, my wife can confirm my alibi. The magistrates did speak with Driscoll's wife, but they remained suspicious and threw the Irishman in prison anyway. To add to the rumor melee, 
The Times soon reported that witnesses saw two men running toward Ratcliffe Highway on the night of the King's Arms murders. One of the men appeared exhausted, and the other was heard calling out and referring to his partner as Mahoney, or a similar-sounding Irish name, as the paper phrased it. Things only spiraled from there. Rumors swirled around England of slain shopkeepers and even hit lists of local businessmen. The Home Secretary received letters from every part of the country regarding the unrest. The Prince Regent offered another reward of 500 pounds, but this time included a pardon for any persons, other than the killers themselves, with information. The investigators got a deluge of tips and opened early on Monday morning to examine a fresh batch of possible culprits. One of these suspects was John Williams, a 27-year-old sailor who lived at a public house near the King's Arms. He was a frequent customer at the tavern and had been seen drinking there on the night of the Williamson murders. Williams had a connection to the Marr murders, too. He'd sailed with Timothy Marr on a ship called the Dover Castle a few years before. But while Timothy Marr saved up his wages to start a respectable life on land, John Williams was perfectly happy spending his time between voyages in taverns, gambling houses, and brothels. It's unclear why exactly Williams was originally arrested. Police records indicate that officers acted on a tip, but there's no record of the tip itself. But as his interrogation proceeded, more and more information came out that tied him to the crime, at least in the magistrate's inexperienced eyes. Williams' roommates at the lodging house saw him come home late on the night of the massacre at the King's Arms, They also remembered that he was broke before the murders and afterwards seemed to be flush with silver coins. The young sailor fit some of the descriptions of the murderer as well. He was short and had a slight limp, which could have altered his gait and made him look like the tired man running away from the king's arms. And crucially, he was thought to be Irish. By modern standards, this evidence is fairly weak, And even the most basic facts, like William's country of origin, were later disputed. But he seemed like the best suspect the magistrates had, and that was enough to keep him behind bars. John Williams was tossed into prison, just like the dozen or so suspects who came before him. As they shut the iron gates, the investigators had no idea that they were locking up the criminal whose story would change London forever. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the Ratcliffe Highway Murders. For more information on the Ratcliffe Highway Murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Mall and the Pear Tree, The Ratcliffe Highway Murders 1811 by P.D. James and T.A. Critchley, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Pamela Sue Anton, with writing assistance by Sarah Batch-Eller, Kylie Harrington, and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Brian Kim, Joe Hernandez, Ellie Schiff, Laith Walshlager, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.